Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Dial the Gates. My name is David Reed. This is the Stargate Oral History Project. Uh, I apologize for running the wrong title sequence at the beginning. As you can tell, Michael Welsh is going to be joining us uh, soon, but that's going to be for this Wednesday, not right now. Paul Mully, writer, executive producer, Stargate SG-1, Atlantis Universe. He is joining us, and uh, we're going to uh, dive into uh, several of his shows today and ask him some questions. You're more than welcome to submit some on your own, and I'm going to tell you how to do that in just a moment here. But first, if you like Stargate and you want to see more content like this on YouTube, it would mean a great deal if you click that like button it makes a difference with youtube and will continue to help the show grow please also consider sharing this video with a stargate friend and if you want to get notified about future episodes click that subscribe icon and giving the bell icon a click will notify you the moment a new video drops and you'll get my notifications of any last minute guest changes and clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next uh, few weeks on the dial the gate and gateworld.net youtube channels as this is a live stream we have uh paul molly joining us uh, here now. So uh, my team over in the YouTube chat will be taking your questions, gathering them together, and we'll have a few of them uh, over for uh, Paul at the uh, end of the episode. Paul Mully, executive producer and writer of Stargate. Sir, thank you so much for being back with me. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, how are you? Can you hear me? Uh-oh. Hang on just a second here. Let me try this. We were working earlier. Can you hear me now? Hmm. All right. Hang on, guys. I appreciate your patience. Um, I think it's. I think it may be on your end, Paul. Hmm. It was working earlier. But you you can't hear you can't hear me or you can't hear me. You can't hear me. You cannot hear me. Well, this is new. This was just working. Apologize, folks. Uh, let's uh, see here. Okay. Ch -ch -ch -ch. 
All right, give me just one moment, everybody. Uh, we're going to disconnect and then reconnect. All right, give me just a moment here. Appreciate y'all's patience. This is what happens when you do live shows. Sooner or later, something comes up and it's like, oh, okay. Let's try this one again. Microphone testing. Testing sounds good. Okay. Testing speakers. Okay, that's good. Thanks everyone for waiting. Give me just a moment here. See, when you produce live shows, you have to be prepared for anything to happen. Let me see here. Wait for him to come back on. This is episode number 183, and I think this is our first. I haven't had like a malfunction in at least like like this one in at least, you know, 50 of them. So I'm always, <laughs> Raj Luther, always start with the basics. Did you turn it off and on again? Yes, I did. All right. So who all has seen Star Trek Picard Season 3? Huh? It's pretty good, right? So it's just as about as, as perfect fan service as you can possibly get. Um, I was very, very pleased. So. Okay. Just a second, folks. Hey, can you log back in? Yes. Okay. This is my first live reconnect in 183 um, uh, interviews, so I consider I consider that a win. <laughs> so. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It. The strange thing. It was. I've never had it like work and then suddenly not work. That was very strange. So. And see, this is why people turn it into live shows, just like they go to NASCAR races. They want to see the crashes. So exactly right. Maybe it'll be in my turn. So, trouble in turn three. Okay. Still waiting for it to show on my end. And, and you clicked on the link? Yeah. Hmm, okay. There you go, I see. Let's try this again. 
Connecting with audio. Unmute. There we go. Okay. Paul, we can hear you. <laughs> Fantastic. I can hear you too. <laughs> okay. Let's uh, let's get started and hope that uh, hope that we're it good. It doesn't happen again. <laughs> exactly right. Okay. <clears throat> All right. So we just had our Apollo 13 moment, everyone. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So Stargate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. All right, let's get a, let's just jump right into this here. Um, you guys broke so many shows, went through so many drafts, um, and then uh, hammered everything out into ov- over 350 hours of television. Can you please, as in the simplest terms as possible, describe <laughs> the steps that you went through? from initial conversations to final draft, final draft of a typical hour of Stargate. Okay. Well, there, I mean, there were, (laughs) there weren't necessarily typical uh, uh, episodes because it depended on, on what kind of story it was. Cause some of the stories were very much by committee, Um, especially the bigger two parters, Anything that had to do with like continuing stories, ongoing arcs, stuff like that. But really, really the big, the big budget two-parters, the big, you know, end of season or mid-season two-parters. They were really like, Joe and I wrote a lot of those, but we didn't necessarily come up with the ideas for those. Mm-hmm. Those were, those were done in the room. Um, uh, we knew, we knew sort of where the arcs needed to go. Right. We needed to deal with certain, you know, whether it was, you know, Apophis is coming to Earth and it's going to be a big battle or whatever, you know, like like. So those stories were very much broken as a group, um, not just broken as a group. They were all broken as a group, but but sort of conceived almost more as a group. Um, the one the one off episodes, the episodes that didn't necessarily have to do with any big ongoing stories and some of the smaller episodes, those it weren't always like this, but they tended to be more individual ideas. Like somebody would just come in with an idea. Um, <clears throat> Brad, Brad would always have an image. Brad was the image guy. He would, he would walk in, <laughs> walk into the office in the morning and say, I had an image. And, and it would literally be an image. It would be, it, it, he thought very visually a lot of the time. And so we would build a story around, you know, his, well, he would have an idea for a story and, and, but then, or I would like a lot of my stories were, especially the one-off ones, they were just what I would call sort of sci-fi ideas, you know, like, like, I don't know. Uh, what if uh, like, well, like, like Scorched Earth, we talked about Scorched Earth last time. That was a pure sci-fi idea. That was just, okay, terraforming a planet, but it's aliens terraforming the planet to make it right for them. So there's a twist on the whole terraforming idea. So that's the, that's the genesis essentially of that story. I had that idea or if, or any other ones, once we were, unfortunately, that's not a good example because we weren't actually in Vancouver at the time we were still in Montreal. We hadn't yet gone on the show. That was kind of one of the original pitches. Um, we did wind up breaking that uh, uh, in the room. I think I, I don't know. Actually we wrote in, we wrote a draft before we even went to Vancouver. So, but other other ones down the line that I did were, you know, like that as well, where I would just kind of get a, a science fiction idea and come in and pitch it and be like, okay, I have an idea for X, Y, or Z. Like, you know, I don't know, like the episode where Mitchell remembers murdering somebody. So somebody implanted a memory of murdering a, a woman in his mind. Okay. So that's just, that's like a sci-fi idea kind of thing. Um, 
so somebody would come in with an eye, whether it was me or Joe or Brad or Robert, like, like I said, Brad had a lot of images and, and, you know, we would then work together to break the story, but that per would be sort of more that person's story. And then they would write that episode, whoever came up with the initial, I usually, not always, sometimes Brad came up with ideas and then didn't write them. Um, cause he was, you know, he was super busy and, uh, so sometimes he'd let us write some of where, so, so I think we shared story credit on with him on a few things along the way. Um, <clears throat> Joe and I never bothered with, to worry about credit. So if it was my idea or his idea, we, we've just put both our names on it. We never, we never really worried about that. And even, even af after a while we were writing separately and we still didn't bother to, to say this one's written by Joe and this one's written by Paul. It was just, just write written by both of us. We knew we were had sort of an even workload and we weren't going to argue about, you know, who's going to get paid more for this. Cause you, as you know, as a sole writer, you would get paid more, but we never, we always knew it was going to kind of work out <clears throat> to be fairly even. So we didn't worry about that, but yeah, so somebody had to have an idea. So that's the start <laughs> uh, of, of a lot of those stories is somebody came in with an idea, a pitch. Um, uh, that's sort of, you know, the beginning part, uh, it got harder. <laughs> to do that as the show went on, uh, especially in terms of the one-offs, those got harder. The the arc, anything that had to do with a big series arc, those actually got easier in a way because there was, there was just so much stuff out there, you know, that we had done. So the more, the more the mythology built, the more stuff we could kind of go back to and say, well, we remember this planet and this guy, they're still out there. We could do a story with them. And so, so, in a way, the weight of this the show generated its own stories after a while, um, just because there was so much material out there. There were so many characters and so many stories out there. But the one-offs, those got tricky because, because it's like, you know, how many science fiction ideas can you come up In with? Just many sort of respects, your you're starting from square one. Science fiction ideas, they, yeah. they get hard, especially when you're watching Star Trek at the same time and you don't want to just copy them and they do, they're doing a billion episodes. Um, uh, you know, there's a, and they, you know, they, they did a lot of those kind of one-off sci just pure sci-fi stories mm -hmm. too. So, um, after a while, it's like, oh my god! I remember Joe and I like freaking out at the end of the fifth. I think it was season five, going, how the, how are we going to keep writing this show? We're, we're, there's no more ideas. <laughs> we, we've done, we've already done, you know, whatever, hundred episodes at that point. Uh, I remember Larry David saying that about after the first season of Seinfeld. That he like he heard they were picked up and he started crying because he was so afraid that they wouldn't have any more ideas, and then they wrote I don't know, how many seasons that did they write out? It's that? it's extraordinary. He he had everything handed in in his lap, and you know you think he would be extremely happy, you know that he's got his his life has been made, but no, he's just freaking out that he can never pull this off. Has no well, if you watch Curb Enthusiasm, you get the sense that it's difficult for him to be happy in general. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that he's the kind of person who has to almost pathologically ruin his own happiness. But uh, but I totally understood what he was saying. Like like you yeah. get to that point where you're like, oh my god, we're how are we gonna? Right, this is impossible. But we kept going. Um, so typically, how many drafts would you have? Was that typically how many drafts would you have? So, okay. So what would happen? So we would get the idea. So someone would have an idea, then we would break it in the room. Breaking essentially just means finding the act breaks first okay. and foremost. So, and then finding the beats per act. So you got to remember this was before, before um, streaming. So these were written with commercial breaks built in. I don't know if people nowadays 
who are writing streamed shows, if they do act breaks, like consciously on the pit, like mm. literally write them on act four, act five. We did five act, we did a tease in five acts, right? Um, and they were designed for commercial breaks. And so the whole point was uh, you had to end on something interesting. You had to end on, end an act on either an action beat or a mystery beat or a big surprise or something. And this goes back to like the beginning of television to the early days of television. And the thinking was, if you go to commercial and the person isn't super engaged and going, oh, I can't wait to see what happens next, they're gonna change the channel or wander off to the fridge and forget to come back or whatever. So you had to you had to build these moments that were like, oh, I, I really need to see what happens next. So they would be patient and sit through the commercials, right? right? And, and you would come back, TV is completely different now. Although I think if I was writing, even if it was a stream show without commercial breaks, I'd still write act breaks because because it's a very good way to structure your story and it and it keeps things moving and you have these these you're forced to do these these moments that are these kind of like oh shit or oh, sorry uh, you're these, fine oh my god moments yeah um that keep the story moving and keep the audience you know engaged throughout as opposed to letting like a half hour go by before anything really you know you get caught up in a really heavy dialogue scene or something and all this and then you, you forget, oh, this is, you know, we've been sort of dwelling on this for too long. We need to move on. The act breaks really force you to do that. So that's what we would do. That's what breaking the story meant, essentially. We would, we would write it. We put it on a whiteboard. I normally did the writing on the whiteboard. Uh, Joe's writing was way too, I don't know if you've ever tried to read any of Joe's handwriting. <laughs> No, it's not. He's got the worst. He even can't read it. I'd be like, what does this say? I'd hand him his own writing and he'd be like, I have no idea. I don't know what that says. <laughs> um, and Brad was, I believe Brad was left-handed. Is left-handed. Oh, no. So a whiteboard, you can't, because your no. your hand erases what you've written. <laughs> right. <laughs> you're, you're, the, the meat of your hand is like following you across the and, and wiping. So that was always an issue. So I think I wound up doing a lot of the actual just physically right. I was like, okay, so what's the first beat in act one? And, you know, open it to the room. Anybody have any ideas? I mean, we know what the story is. We know, you know, okay, so well, this story is going to start in the briefing room. They often did or something like that. And they're going to talk or, you know, we we did teases. So teases were, you know, they had to they had to grab you right away. Right. So that was a very important part of the writing process. What's the tease going to be? Usually that was pretty easy coming up with the tease because it was central to the story. It was built into the, whatever your idea for the story was, what was often, you know, the tease was often sort of obvious. Mm -hmm. uh, we always wound up having not enough acts. Like that was like the continuous problem of breaking stories was like, we all be sitting around looking at the board and we'd be like, we've only got four acts. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like we were always an act short. That would just to drive us crazy. Um, so we'd have to like try to make sure that we had all those, the, all the, uh, all those things working in, in, you know, one, two, three, four, five acts. Uh, it, then you need a certain number of beats per act. Beats are just kind of not necessarily scenes. They could be scenes or just kind of moments that sort of little logical jumps in the story from this to this to this to this. And you usually need like four or five beats per act to get around the right length. Mm -hmm. um, so you could look at the story on the board and realize that you were short or that you were long or that it wasn't, you know, the, you could sort of see where the problems were. And luckily we had a group of people who were very good. <laughs> Uh, so if I didn't have the answer, you know, hopefully somebody else would have mm. the answer, you know, um, uh, that was the whole point of the room, mm. right? Like we're working together. It's maybe one person's idea, but it was very rare for somebody to come in and just 
know all the beats, just know all the act breaks. And I'm, I'm, I suppose it probably did happen occasionally, but what I remember most is the struggles. It was like, oh God, this is really good, but we just were missing one thing, you know, something's missing and somebody would have to, you know, come up with an idea to fix it. Uh, Rob was very good. I, I remember Rob being, Rob was very good at keeping the meeting going like like because because there there's moments where you just kind of lose momentum and you're all just sitting there going oh no we don't we don't have an answer for this and he would sort of just keep talking like almost just like just throw things out just to keep the momentum moving and, and he was very good at keeping the room going because because if you don't have that kind of a person in the room often they'll just kind of stall and, right. and then you're just then you're thinking about other things you start talking about what we're going to have for lunch and i remember <laughs> a lot of discussions about lunch the mornings, I don't know how much work we got done in the mornings because a lot of it was about lunch. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I would think, you know, part, part of me would be like, okay, lunch. Let's talk about lunch so that we can – because for as far as I'm concerned, a lot of my ideas come to me when I turn away from them for a little bit. Yeah. And then they occur. Sure. So it's yeah. not like you're and, deliberately and you, avoiding. Sure. And you can't you can't force it, right? Like, yeah. Like – you know, like I said, Rob was very good at keeping the meeting going to, to, so we wouldn't lose momentum, but you, you can't just, okay, you know, we, we need an idea right now. If it's nothing's happening, nothing's happening. If it's not, if it's not, I mean, you're right. You know, we could go, we could leave, go. There was always other stuff to do. There was producer duties to somebody had to go, go to set or go, go to the editing room or whatever. So we, we didn't always just sit down and like, we, I, we were, we had heard, horrible what appeared to me to be horrible stories of other rooms where people would stay till like 10 o'clock at night and or midnight trying to break stories and just just like they sounded like torture chambers where these people would just like force themselves we were we were pretty lazy i it felt like we were i mean we were writing a lot but i never we we kept very good hours uh brad and robert insisted on not doing that kind of that kind of uh, a room they wanted to, you know, they had their lives and they had families and they knew that, you know, we had stuff to go home to. So it was not, uh, it was not like there was no slave driving going on. It was, but I don't know, we just had the right combination of people to get over the, these little humps that would happen. And they always happen in every story. There's always a moment where like, ah, oh, what do you do? How do we, it's, like I said, it's very rare for it all to just kind of go boom, 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 boom. Well, that was easy. You know, uh, there's always a moment where you're like, oh, how do we fix this? And, you know, that's why it's good to be in a group mm -hmm. of people. Right. You know, the, it's not just up to you um, when you're in a when you're in a room, you're all working together to, mm. to. I also heard stories like I had heard this a lot about rooms and comedies that they weren't very cooperative, that they were actually kind of there was a lot of competition in the rooms of a lot because it was all about who got whose joke got to be on the show. Right. You it's know, like a status uh, thing. I've heard that who's, before. Who's I never, I've never experienced it. I never, never yeah. worked in a room on a comedy, but um, well, you know, Joe and I did when we started, but that was a whole different thing. Um, but like a net, big network comedy show. Like I, I've heard that, 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 that was often the case on a lot of shows that it was, it was kind of more of a competitive rather than a cooperative environment. Stargate was not like that at all. It was 100%. Nobody, nobody actually really cared who got credit for it. That's why I said like it, you know, my name or Joe's name or Brad's name or mm. Robert's name might be on an episode, but there are all kinds of ideas in there that that were contributed by everybody, right? And we didn't sit around saying, well, that was my idea, that was your idea, whatever. It was a 100% like group effort, you know, to to make it work. Because even if somebody had a really great idea and had most of it, there was usually at least one moment where they needed help. 
mm-hmm. where somebody or sometimes it's just good to have somebody else's eyes on it like right like you get so into a story and so caught up in it if you're, you've got an idea you might not be able to see some problems mm-hmm. but if somebody on the outside can can sort of take an objective view uh, see the problems and help you fix them um so that was you know so we would like i said we would do that we would break the story get the act breaks get the beats then somebody would have to go off and write a draft. Well, actually, I guess we wrote outlines. That essentially, the the what was on the board was essentially a bullet point version of the outline. But then I think we, I guess we fleshed them out. I think at some point we stopped doing outlines because we'd just done so many and we all knew what we were mm-hmm. doing. And um, other writers who came in who weren't in the room all the time would have to do outlines, obviously. But I don't, Typically, I don't know if we always... How, how many oh, we days? But we were, let's say we did outlines and then some, we would read the outline. And normally it was just what was on the board. So there really wasn't much to do at that point in terms of getting notes, but everybody would read it. And, and if it was maybe a writer who wasn't one of us, it was, a, a, you know, wasn't a regular writer. I mean, by regular writer, I essentially mean, you know, there was me, Joe, Brad and Robert were the only four people who were there from be- my beginning, not the mm-hmm. beginning of the show because we missed the first three seasons but from the moment that joe and i arrived till the end of the series the only people who were always there were the four of us other writers came we had great writers you know like carl and martin and and who contributed awesomely but you know we were sort of the core group um so i don't know if i forget what i was trying to say but it, um essentially so you know so you take your outline uh oh yeah i was i was talking about other writers so give notes on the outline so if there's any problems, if there's anything that's been added that wasn't on the board, and sometimes there would be stuff, stuff would have to be fleshed out, and you might notice a problem and say, well, okay, we have to fix this. But usually the outline process was pretty pretty much a formality mm. at that stage. The real thing is the first draft, is now somebody's got to write the first draft. So like I said, if it was uh, an individual idea, if I came in with an idea, most likely I would be the one to write the draft. The, the bigger stories that were, the arc stories that were kind of more by committee, they would, we would just, they would just sort of get assigned. Like, who's free? Who's got the time to yeah. do it? Uh, okay, you know, you go write it, and and that's this will be your episode. But you know, and again, we made sure to kind of just sort of evenly distribute that kind of stuff and make, keep it fair and everything. But uh, but I have <clears throat> a couple of questions about that. How long? Did okay, you- we can back, we can come back to that. But then, yeah, okay. so you write a draft, and then you give it to the group. Uh, like none of this is all just the room, right? At this point, nobody else is involved. The network's not involved. Nobody else has read it. It's just us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I don't know how many drafts. I don't think we did that. I mean, maybe more early on. But as the show went on, certainly amongst the four of us, we had sort of gotten to the stage where we all knew what was coming. Like we knew there was a level of trust and sort of, you know, being able to sort of anticipate exactly what someone would want or not want in a story. Like, you know, I, I, I could tell if I was writing a beat that, that Robert or Brad would object to, you know, cause I knew them and I, I, I worked with them enough that we got to the point where you didn't need to do like multiple drafts because the first draft would be typically pretty solid. Mm. Um, but you'd get notes from the room. And I think usually a second draft, I'm, I, I want to say, I don't remember specifically, but somewhere at, in a second draft stage, you would then, like put the script out right to the world to the to the to the production um uh and there might be issues that would arise you didn't we didn't get notes from people you know 
uh, in the production, but they might point out problems, you know, in terms of locations or sets or that would require changes to the script. But that's one that would be once we were sort of in prep and we were doing meetings. Um, I don't remember at what stage the script would be like locked. And then after that, so you always have to lock the script. And then after that, if you hadn't made any more changes after that, they would have to be those colored pages. Okay. If you've ever seen that. Mm -hmm. So, so the people would track because that was once prep had started so that all the departments would know, Oh, a change has been made for whatever reason. Uh, so everybody could, so you get those blue pages and pink pages. And I think went to goldenrod. <laughs> there were, there, there, I think it, it was like, Pink, blue, green, yellow, or, and then there, I always remember Goldenrod was like the last one. And then you would go, you would start doubling. It'd be like double blue, double pink. Double, and if <laughs> oh, you got God. the double Goldenrod, that was wow. That, was that, that would meant that meant you had done a lot of revisions. I don't think that happened very often on Stargate. I think if it ever did, we probably would have talked about it. Uh, but I just remember the phrase "double Goldenrod" was not a good. <laughs> like, oh my God, this one went to double Goldenrod. Um, but a lot of that was, at that stage, it was mostly production issues. Like uh -huh. I said, it was, well, we lost this, we lost that location. We can't use that location. Well, it's like, well, this doesn't make sense if I don't have that location. Now I've got to make a change based on the fact uh -huh. that, and some, some of the even would even happen on the day, like, you know, uh, something would come up and, and we'd have to make a change on the day. And so that would be another set of pages would, co would come out. But um, for the most part, I think, Within the core group of writers, like I said, the, the guys that were there through the whole thing, uh, probably one or two drafts, uh, and then you would lock the script, and then you would go from there and make make sort of smaller changes that were. Oh, actually, I guess before before we locked the script, we would get notes from the network. I assume how did that work? I forget. I forget at what stage in the process that was, but uh, yeah, they, so they, there was that. Mm. We would we would deal with their notes first before we sort of moved on to the to the production side of things, just in case there was any big issues. You know, you wouldn't want to go down the road of prep and then have the network say we hate this episode. Uh, <laughs> oh God! Uh, so we probably again, I don't really remember it being ever being like a huge issue. I mean, we did notes calls with the network, and you know they. I think we talked about this last time. Yeah. That, you know, there was the time that Brad tried to crawl out the window, but yeah. But for the most part, it wasn't that bad. It, it, looking back on it now, there were there were some notes calls that were that were difficult, but you know, it didn't. It, we never like had to like start over. It was never like a uh, page one rewrite because the network hates this. We never did that. Uh, so at least I don't remember ever doing that. Um, so like I said, you know, for us, you know, typically you'd, you'd, you'd get to the stage of like, you know, prep and having people read it and, and working on it as a group, as a bigger group, really after just a couple of drafts okay. was, was pretty typical. Um, I would say one or two drafts. Well, I'd, I'd say a second draft with maybe some small changes after that. Part of the problem was we were just moving fast, right? Like we... 20, 22 episodes at, at the beginning and then it dropped down to 20. But as it dropped down to 20, then Atlantis came along. So we were actually doing 40 episodes for two, three years. Mm -hmm. Three years. Where they overlapped. Mm -hmm. And then Robert, Rob and Brad were doing the movies. So, you know, it just was very busy. And I've said this before, like, excuse me, but once you start production... It's okay at the because we would always start our room before production started. We would come in in like January after the holidays. The show would start shooting, I think, in like March typically. Mm -hmm. But January, February was just us. It was just the writers, and we try to get as many 
stories broken and written as possible because before you start, because once you start, you have a production schedule and, and more importantly, a post-production schedule that you cannot back out of. There's, you have to deliver mm-hmm. this this version of the of the episode on this date, and you have to deliver this version. And the, the sound mix is here, and this is, and it's like boom, 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 and you can't mess with that. Uh, so once it's like a, it's you have to feed the machine, <laughs> right? So so you got to get writing. So you don't have time to like fart around with ten drafts. Mm-hmm. You just you, we just couldn't do that. It would have made the show impossible to to produce. When you were writing one of your like, let's take a take one of your single stories for an example, like mm-hmm. between the arcs and everything else. Uh, right. How first of all, how many acts would you when you were really into the thick of this? How many acts could you typically write in a day? And uh, did you ever write an episode out of order, or did you just go straight through it? Did it, was there ever not specific scenes that I'm asking for, but were there ever circumstances where it's like, I really want to see how this scene goes out. I'm going to write this first. Oh no, you can't hear me again. What the heck happened? This is so crazy guys. I'm so sorry about this. So. This is so weird. Hang on just a second. Y'all. It's I don't know what's happening. It's like it's like it's, everything is normal on my end. It's like it's all broadcasting, and then. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, do you have? Uh, is it an iPhone that you've got, or? Okay, let me see if I can FaceTime you because the the audio quality should improve. Yes, that audio is much better. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, let me make sure that I got the levels for everybody here. Say, say something. Say something, Paul. Hello, hello, hello. Testing, testing. All right, sweet. So that's that's just how we'll do this. Um, sorry, everybody, but uh, we will we will do some uh, some checks uh, next time if we ever have to. Do it this way again. So, Paul, um, let me get back to you on, on the screen here. Okay. Um, my question uh, is uh, t- typically how um, – let me reformulate. This is all new for me too. Okay. So how uh, – when you're writing like an episode on your own uh, that's that's out that's outside of arcs or anything else, uh, how, how many drafts would you how, – how many drafts could you typically get in – to writing in one day and would you always write linearly or would you sometimes do write some of the acts out of order depending on you know your interest in the product oh no no because because we were doing because we would break the story first and have the outline uh i would always write in order we we would just i would just follow the outline really honestly the hard part is breaking the story at least I, i that's how i remember it mostly like once you had a solid outline you were kind of just following that and filling in the blanks. Then every once in a while, there'd be some TVDs in the outline that that you kind of leave up to the writer, and, okay. and, and and then in the moment you'd be like, "Oh, that's that's we should have <laughs> we should have talked more about this because this is actually a problem." And then I'd just go and talk to the guys about it, whatever. But um, in terms of like writing, how much writing in a day? I I think it typically took me until about two weeks to turn around a draft. Uh, I think that was about normal 
Okay. Uh, I do remember writing a couple episodes like over a weekend just because it had yeah. to be done. Um, but not usually, but we, we, that would, that would be pretty unusual to, to, to do that. That, that, that might've happened because, because some kind of change in the schedule happened in an episode that was going to shoot later is now shooting sooner and you got to write it really fast. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think, I think two weeks, I don't know. I think two weeks probably sounds about right from sort of once you got the outline to, to a draft mm. or it might've, might've even been faster than that sometimes. Like I said, to me, the hard part was breaking the story. Mm -hmm. uh, it was once you had, and that was the whole point of the process because because once you had that outline, it was actually relatively, I don't want to say easy, but but straightforward to write the script. I mean, you still had to, there still was, there still was nuance that wasn't in on the board. There still was dialogue that you had to come up with and and humor and and emotional beats and things like that, that that weren't necessarily on the board or, or just sort of written but not fleshed out in mm -hmm. any way. You st and you still had to attack the scenes. By attack the scene, I mean sort of on the board you might say, okay, this is what happens in a scene, who's in the scene and what they're talking about. But when you sit down to write it, it's like, okay, well, there's actually now this, is, this scene itself has a structure to it as well. Should I start with this person saying this or should that come in halfway? That's what I mean by the attack on the scene, because because that can really make or break a scene, and 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 that would take some thought. Obviously, it's not that wasn't on the board necessarily. Uh, that was something that whoever was writing the individual episode would have to come up with. But like I said, we got to the point where, you know, we had such great writers on the show that we it was never really an issue. It was not, it was it was pretty rare to do an outline and then get a draft that was disappointing mm. that didn't that didn't pay off what we had done in the outline if that happened it was because there was a new writer who just wasn't quite up to speed on everything yet and hadn't learned the just sort of the rhythm of the show and mm. the way the, the way it all the way it all went down um uh, brad and robert and joe and i and eventually carl and martin too and a few other people you know we all had that we knew we knew sort of the nuance what would work and what wouldn't work so so it was very rare to get a draft from an outline and go oh this is this isn't what we talked about mm -hmm. uh in fact it never happened like i said because we were all in the room together breaking the story we were all sort of signed off already at that stage and then nine out of ten times the script would be like oh this is awesome this would be like you know you'd, you'd read the draft that brad or robert did from the outline and it'd be like this is even better than I thought it was going to be, right? Like, like these moments, because on the board, it's just, it, like I said, it's bullet point. It's not that interesting. It's your job at that point to make it interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're going to follow the outline, but you're going to do it in a way that, that's engaging and fun and interesting and emotional and all those things. But we just happen to have writers who could do that. <laughs> uh, that's why the show, that's why the show went as long as it did, right? It, it just, it's, there's, there's no getting around. We had, a great group of guys who complemented each other really well, got along really well. I mean, again, I've heard stories from other writers rooms where that didn't necessarily happen. And, and I think we were lucky. I think, I think we, chemistry is a weird thing, right? And it happens with casting. It happens with a lot of things with your product, even your production, even your like mm -hmm. department heads, like they all have to, everybody has to work together. And, and, that was one of the great things on Stargate is we got to the point where the production side of things was such a well-oiled machine because we just, we, we weeded out the people who didn't work. And, and by the end, we just, we just knew what everybody was just knew exactly what to do. And, 
Um, but from the writing standpoint, from a writer's room standpoint, it's actually pretty amazing to have four, five, six guys. We we did have women write on the show, but mm-hmm. but like I said, the four the four of us were I considered to be sort of the core. Um, who worked that well together and, and who meshed that well together, both both personally, because a lot of the room is just hanging out, right? Like, a lot of it's just, like I said, talking about what we're going to have for lunch and talking about what we saw in the news and, and you know, just, just being people hanging out. It's not all just the story. And those things have to work too, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, in terms of, like, you obviously want to like the people because you're spending a hell of a lot of time yeah. with them. Uh, uh, you want to get along with people, and we did. We had a great time. I, I, mostly, what I remember from the room is just laughing. We had so much fun. We, we just, it was just a lot of jokes and a lot of just, just it was, just, it was good. It was good times. Yes, there were struggles. Sometimes the episode wouldn't be working, and it would be hard, and we'd be like, oh, we need to really get this stupid story fixed. We can't, uh, and just like, sure that happened. But I honestly remember mostly just having fun. Honestly, it was it was a great experience. It was a lot of fun. Is there um, a story you can share about really what it was like to work under Brad Wright and Robert C. Cooper? Well, there's no one. <laughs> okay, I can't really think of one specific story that 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 sort of exemplifies. Who yeah, those, who those guys were for me, but I, I look. Like I said, I think we were all very lucky. All four of us were lucky that we found each other, kind of thing. Because Brad and Robert, they weren't partners, right? So Joe and I were partners. It's, it was different for us. We were already writing yeah. scripts together before we even showed up. Um, Robert was just a writer that Brad and Jonathan brought in, brought into the show, and just turned out to be one of the best writers and the one who stayed the longest, basically from the very beginning. Um, and when Jonathan left, that opened the door for. Robert to take more of a, a sort of co-showrunner role and then eventually we also did that and that was mm-hmm. one of the great things about working with Brad and Robert is it wasn't just the writing it was also showrunner school for Joe and I because mm-hmm. uh, they brought us in like like Brad early on he was like come to the editing room with me you're, you're going to learn so much in the editing room you'll realize how because he said you tell the story in the editing room and I was like you do and then I watched him do it and I was like oh yeah you do yeah it's an incredibly important part of the process it tends to not get a lot of people don't talk about it that much because a lot of people don't really understand it and the the concept of writing is fairly simple you come up with an idea you write the script but the editing room is hugely important and and then they also brought us into all the prep meetings uh, all the all the you know the the department head meetings with the department heads I was going to the stunt meetings and the costume meetings and the <clears throat> locations scouts and everything and and it's wow. like i said it was it was showrunner school it was like learning how to become a showrunner and to the point where by the season four and five of atlantis we were the showrunners because mm-hmm. they had taught us how to do it and they were both very good at it and and so that was fantastic like and a lot of that's just again just a matter of time we were just there for so long we had so many opportunities to learn things along the way because the show blasted you know, you don't get to do that if the show goes three seasons and you're you're like a junior writer at the beginning. By the third season, maybe you're doing some producing, but you know, maybe not. And and so we just they and they were very good about that. They wanted us to. I think they maybe just you know they, it was taking a load off of them if we could do some of that ourselves. Like you guys can do the editing room. That's one less thing for me to do. Correct. Um. Uh. So so they taught us how to do that stuff. 
and um, so that in and of itself was amazing. Um, the writing thing is a bit weird. It's a bit different, like I said, because they weren't partners, and they didn't. I don't think, and a lot of people who aren't, who've never done it in the in the writing world, don't understand writing partnerships. They're like, I remember Robert asking me, like, just how do you guys do it? Like, how do you? Because for for him and Brad, it's a very individual thing, right? You're you're sitting at your desk and you're staring at your computer and you're thinking up ideas and writing. Yes, we broke the stories as a group, but at a certain point, one person has to sit down. But in fact. When Joe and I started, we didn't do it that way. We were actually two people writing at the same time. He would be on the computer because he typed faster than I did. His handwriting, <laughs> his handwriting was terrible, but his typing skills were better than mine. Uh, <laughs> and at that point, we weren't writing anything down. And I would just pace. I would just pace. I and mean, my office was pretty small. There wasn't a lot of room. We eventually got bigger offices, thank God. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, he would be on the, and we'd be like, okay, scene one, we're in the brief room, who's there? And he'd write, okay, interior brief room, day, O'Neill is there with blah, blah, blah. And he, okay, well, so Hammond walks in, what does he say? And we'd just say dialogue to each other, and he would type it down. <laughs> now, event, eventually, we did stop doing that. I, I think we talked about this before, that when we just got so busy, it was, yeah. it was faster for us to both just write at the same time on different episodes. So he'd be writing one episode, I'd be writing, and we could do that at the same time and get two episodes for what would normally take the time to do to do one and so eventually we did sort of go back to a more traditional uh way of writing but but we were collaborating you know before we even came to stargate brad and robert had to find a way to work together you know that was different so their path to that was a little bit different and you'd have to ask them about exactly how that that you know that all came about mm -hmm. and i think again a lot of it was just luck we just we just gelled it was just chemistry that just happened we were just personalities that worked well together. Um, I remember, I, you know, Brad and Robert were also big golfers, and and I was, and Joe was not. <laughs> so Joe, unfortunately, was on the outside of the guy, and he made fun of us relentlessly every Monday because we would play on the weekends. He would he would ask us sarcastic questions about our golf game because uh, he hated it when we talked about golf. He was like pull <laughs> like, back in his head. He'd be like, oh my god, we're really going to spend an hour talking about golf. As, as much as I as much as I would love people, I don't know if I could, you know, work with them all week and then play with them on the weekends. I don't know if I could bring myself, even if I'm crazy about them. That's a lot yeah, of time. It's yeah, I'm I'm not kidding. This is not. You, it was special. It was yeah. a special group of guys, and we had so Brad and Robert and I played and we had our the fourth member of our team was was uh, Mark Davidson who was yeah. a uh, set decorator set decorator he uh he was our fourth and so we would play that was our regular fourth. we played with our kid Chris Judge played golf we yeah. played with him a lot and yeah we I mean there were other people who played but we were sort of the that was our Sunday foursome I know this isn't that interesting to people I'm talking about golf but but uh it was a big part of my experience of, of working on Stargate and, yeah. and how I related to Brad and Rob because, because we got along and we played golf together. I don't know. It's weird. And it, the golf thing, honestly, it was like the writer's room. What I mostly remember is just laughing. We would just yeah. make each other laugh on the golf course because golf is kind of a silly sport to begin with. And they, Brad and Robert took it pretty seriously. They, they, Brad's a very good golfer. Yeah. I played in I haven't played with Robert in a while. I don't know how his game is. Brad's is definitely better than mine. But uh, um, <clears throat> but for me, I just it was just good times. It was just fun. We just made each other laugh. Mark 
was this mark was hilarious and he mark was like it was like he was a very good golfer but but he seemed to be really lucky he was one of those guys like his ball would go into the woods and it would just kick right that out in the middle of the fairway and be like uh it's just mark uh i got to know him on the uh auctions uh, just selling off the stargate stuff because he helped us organize that he's a great he's a terrific human being yeah no he was and he made a great counterpoint to the three of us because we were all writers and you know he was not a writer and uh, anyway whatever uh so that was a big part of my relationship with brad and robert um but from the from the strictly from the show point of view i think really what what I don't know. Like, like I said, the, first of all, they were very generous showing us how to become showrunners, how to become producers. Um, and from a story standpoint, I do remember butting heads sometimes, mostly with Robert, because he, he just, he's a very smart guy and, and he gets, you know, we just, we just fought yeah. about ideas sometimes. It was just, we just had that again, it's a sort of personality thing. It wasn't, we're still friends and we still play golf on the weekends but in terms of story I think I butted heads with him more than anybody else in terms of story the worst were fucking I'm sorry the worst were time travel stories oh Oh, god oh we had some we had some epic uh, breaking sessions on time if it was a time travel story you could count on it taking at least twice if not three times longer because of the logic of it yeah yeah. And I was Mr. Logic. I was like, that doesn't make sense. And they'd be like, shut up. And nobody cares. And, uh, <laughs> oh, that's great. I was, I was, yeah, I was Mr. Logic. They always look at me like, are you okay with this? Like, we, we, it all works for us. Are you going to rain on this parade now and point out to us why this doesn't make sense? And I'd be like, no, it's good. It's good. Um, it's and you know, Brad and Rob, Brad, Brad and I were more like the science fictiony guys. I think mm-hmm. Robert was just a really good writer who could just write anything that was put in front of him, and he happened to fall into science fiction. I don't. I never thought of him as being first and foremost a science fiction guy. Brad, Brad very much was, uh, uh, and he thought in terms of like like those one off ideas I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of science. Brad and Ro- Brad and I both kind of thought in those terms mm-hmm. more than Joe and Rob did. Joe and Rob were just really good at writing the characters so they would they would come up with ideas that were more driven by what if we put our characters through this or or that mm. or whatever as opposed to just a pure science fiction idea like like uh you know i don't know like those one-off episodes that we were mm-hmm. talking about before um so everybody was bringing something different to the table kind of thing uh and it all just clicked wow. you know and and like i said they there's the evidence is is the 10 se- is the well 14 or however many seasons no what is it 17 seasons you did 14 uh, right so um it, that just doesn't happen unless mm-hmm. you guys are working well together like it's it never would have gone that long if we weren't clicking on a level that I don't really understand per mm-hmm. se i can't sort of i couldn't make it happen right like i can't you can't that stuff just kind of it's i'd say like i said i think we were lucky that we we just gelled really well i had you go back through season four uh right. this this past week uh seven eight nine days um you watched uh point of turn no return the mm-hmm. curse chain reaction mm-hmm. prodigy and exodus mm-hmm. what was your overall impression of going back through and looking? I think you said like it was interesting or something like. I'm 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 interested in how you characterized it going back and looking at those first few. Yeah. 
So the last time we talked about, uh, I was thinking the very first episodes, like the ones like like Window of Opportunity and 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 uh, Scorchers, which we, which we pitched before we right. were even in the room. The other episodes were were like we've talking about the room and how it worked and everything. Exodus, for example, is a good a good example of a big episode that's an arc driven episode, right? So that's even though we're credited with writing that, that was very much one of those written by committee type of stories that I was talking about. I mean, I don't remember who actually physically wrote. I guess we were still writing together at that point, so we probably just we were the ones Joe and I wrote it on you know in the room together, but. But it was broke, you know, that story was a group effort kind of thing. We were just assigned it. They were like, you guys write this one. It wasn't like we came in with the idea for Exodus, right? This was this was part of, you know, this backstory with the with the Tokra and everything like that. Um, the other episode, so, so Point of No Return was, I think it was just, I don't remember whose, it was either me or Joe's idea. It was just, wouldn't it be funny if, if, somebody knew about the stargate but play him as like a, a conspiracy because one of the things that we we liked about the show was that it was contemporary it was set on earth in in the 2000s right so uh it was like you could do stories we we always like to do earth-based stories anyway because they tended to be a little bit cheaper um <clears throat> but they were also fun it was an interesting idea like okay this is actually happening on earth these people walk around and read the same news that we're reading, uh, meaning the people who work at the SG at, uh, uh, at Stargate Command, right? They're they're living contemporaneously to the audience in theory, right? In, in the, mm-hmm. that's sort of the beat of the show. And so it was like, well, what if? Because because we you know we knew about all these crazy alien conspiracy theories and everything like that. And so the idea was, well, if somebody comes to them and seems like one of those crazy people, but actually isn't. Uh, and actually does know things about the Stargate that he shouldn't know. That's kind of the genesis of that. That's, so that's like, that's I, I, that was sort of where that, I, that where that story came from. And then we decided to make him kind of a nerd and got uh, Willie Garson to play the part. And he had been, I think he was on Sex in the City. Yes. Yeah. So he was a well-known guy and we had seen him and we we're like, oh, he'd be perfect. And he had a nice, he had a nice chemistry with Rick because they did all their scenes together and and it was it was a nice there was a nice kind of Mutt and Jeff thing going on there between the two of them it was it was funny which was meant to be it was you know obviously there was it was a humor driven episode um what were the other ones we talked to you mentioned so so the the curse and I want to I do want to mention point of no return I want to insert this so that this is part of the of the oral okay. history before we move on the, the uh, I can't remember which one of you mentioned it, but like the curse was, or excuse me, not the curse point of no return was an episode that was almost exactly what it was in the idea to the execution. Like there, oh. you guys had commented that it didn't really change a whole lot. Like what you had envisioned is really what that became in yeah, many sure. respects. Yeah. That Rob, Joe probably told you that. And, and yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Okay. Um, the curse was, I think again, that was kind of more of a, so it did lean on backstory, mm-hmm. but but I think the origin for the idea was the idea of the, the canopic jar with the symbiote in it. Yes, it was probably it was probably from watching the Mummy or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if I'd have to look, go back and look at the years, but uh, the concept of a canopic jar we knew about, and and so it was like because they had done, and I I didn't you know coming into the show in season four. 
I had to learn that oh we, they did the episode Seth and they so they've been there been references to gold on Earth before. Uh, it's not just out there in space. And so somewhere along the way, the idea came up of what if there's a gold symbiote in a canopic jar and some colleague of Daniel's is, you know, gets gets the symbiote and is a gold on Earth. So that I think that was the origin for that. And you pulled from Egyptian history about uh, uh, Osiris and Seth and, you know, what right. what happened with uh, Osiris and Isis. So you pulled from that and it fed into the Goa'uld mythology from Egyptian yeah. mythology. Yeah, I don't remember who did the who did the research on the on the Egyptian uh, um, mythology, but yeah, it, the whole thing was because I can't remember. The, like it was, he was put in some kind of vessel and floated down the river to the underworld. Like yeah, yeah, I, I forget exactly exactly. And it was like, okay, so that totally works with this idea. I don't think that was the genesis of the idea. It just fit. Yeah. Once we started doing doing, I think the genesis honestly was, and obviously we had to make it be a high tech. Canopic jar, but it was it was kind of like the mummy. It was like they they they, they had they talked about canopic jars and the mummy, but the whole idea of being imprisoned, like your your enemy being sort of imprisoned in this vessel for all eternity. In this case, it was just a symbiote. It wasn't a, a, human, a body, but um, and then it was fun to you know revisit to have Daniel revisit some of his backstory again because because this is a contemporary show is happening and, and 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 you know so it's nice to see that he remembers people from his past and and you know it was like there would be people out there who remember him and who would be like where the hell did you go right you know yeah you went crazy and started saying dumb stuff about about the egyptian pyramids but then you disappeared what happened and so it's like an opportunity you get the idea of sort of the sci-fi idea of this symbiote in a jar but then it's like okay well now that's an opportunity to talk about Daniel's past and some relationships that he maybe left behind. Correct. And and all that kind of stuff. And at the end of it, you get a villain who rockets off into space who can come back later. So, you know, so that's so it starts with something simple, but then you take all the elements of the show and layer them in and you get and you sort of open up new avenues for stories down the road. Sarah Gardner was in many respects my favorite villain from from SG One, Anna Louise Plowman. I have wanted to interview her for years, and I've not been able to get her. And the, you guys did something with Osiris that was just—I mean, it was this kind of a substitution because Shari is gone, and so we need mm-hmm. to like give you know a little bit more for for Daniel to 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 sink his teeth into and mm-hmm. um, re, and introduce her that way. But what a magnificent role! She did a great job. Yeah, she was fantastic. I, I the, the the moment that really. <laughs> Where I, when she appears as Osiris, I don't know. I mean, I forget who was our costume designer at that particular time. We went through a few different, but that moment where she's in that white, crazy diaphanous robe thing with the hood on and the way it's lit—that was a, such a great moment. It's like, oh my god, yeah, that that looks so cool. And then she had the hand device and everything. Yeah, that was that was a cool moment. Uh, and she went from being, you know, Daniel's maybe ex-girlfriend or some, you know, somebody. And then, Oh my God, now she's talking about the rivers running red with blood. Oh, <laughs> that, turned, that turned real fast. Uh, so that, you know, I remember that line. I think, I remember thinking, is this line a little over the top? And it's like, yeah, she's a, she's a cool villain. Exactly. They right. Stuff, they get to say stuff like that. Chain reaction. <laughs> yeah, no, Go she ahead. It was great. And, and, and that episode was you know, I, I was very happy with how that episode turned out. Absolutely. Chain Reaction is one of my favorites because, um, are we good? Are you good on time? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm so good. We started late, so we can go. Okay. Can go. Uh, Chain Reaction was one of my favorites because uh, it, it elevated Hammond to the center of the plot. We had another mm-hmm. general who was brought in for a little while who was kind of a patsy, probably working with the NID and Kenzie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just this this great idea of, you know, what if you had someone who was basically doing what the rogue NID did, but he was on the inside of the SGC, blowing up Nakwada bombs, you know, mm-hmm. and how long would it take for everything to go straight to hell? Well, it turns mm-hmm. out just a couple of days. <laughs> it was yeah. It was a great episode for Rick. For Mayborn, yeah. and yeah. you elevated Tom, Tom McBeth and, and Rick. They were extraordinary. They were just yeah. extraordinary. Yeah, so I, I don't remember how, what the genesis was for that episode, because, again, that was not a one-off episode, right? Yeah. That wasn't a one of my single sci-fi idea-type episodes. It was entirely driven by threads that had been left before, right? Uh, the the um, the Mayborn character and the Kinsey character. and uh, So I don't remember exactly how that all came about uh the idea of you know them trying to take over the base uh well actually taking over the base really uh um what the big thing that i remember that about that was was ronnie cox because because you know i coming into the show i didn't know that much about the show this is season four whereas you know Mm -hmm. this was all kind of new to me i'm figuring out what this show is is all about and I was like, oh, this show gets people like Ronnie Cox to be yeah. on. Like, this is cool. Like, it, it really kind of changed my view of the show when I realized that he had been on the show and that we were going to get to write dialogue for him. Because for me, he was the villain from Robocop. Like, that's... And that was a big deal. I loved yeah. that movie. And I loved him yeah. in that movie. And I guess for an older generation, uh, he was from Deliverance. They would, they would remember him from Deliverance. But uh, I I just was like... It's the it's the guy from Dick. From, you're fired. Dick, Thank you. Dick, yeah. <laughs> what was his name? Dick Jones. Dick Jones. Yeah. Out the window. Oh, it was great. Um, uh, but yeah, so I was just very excited that that we had this guy and had been on the show and he was going to come back and we were going to get to write dialogue for him. So that's 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 my biggest memory from that whole episode. Prodigy, the last one on on this list for this season. We had Jennifer Haley, uh, who who uh, was introduced. Uh, the Air Force uh, Academy was used. We had Ivan Bartok in there as well, and it was yeah. just, you know, <laughs> Ivan really. That's that that's singular. That's a singular moment for me and Joe. That excuse me, ma'am, did you say ten dimensions? That that's a that's yeah, that's a classic moment. Uh, Ivan, of course, went on to become. He did. He produced DVD extras for us, and then also, I mean, he worked with us on Dark Matter. So, we, we've been friends with Ivan for a long time. And that's that. That seeing that scene again, I was like, oh my god, I forgot about that. He was one. a baby. I just, I just hadn't seen it in a long time. It's a, it's a great moment. He looks so young. Um, that's an interesting story. So, I think this is an example because I think it was actually Brad's idea. I think this is one example of what we were talking about before. I think we shared story credit for him with him, and he, for whatever reason, wasn't going to write it. Um, uh, and it, it's an interesting episode because it deals with the whole military thing, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, that was a tricky thing for us because we were working with the Air Force, and and we got an incredible amount of cooperation from the Air Force, and eventually they were putting us on planes and sending cool jets up to Vancouver and stuff like that. I mean, they did it. Is that the one was, was that the one with general Bauer or general, not general Bauer. General Bauer was the name. Of the, yeah. So the Kerrigan, general, general Kerrigan. 
the, the actual chief of staff. Oh, like, yes, yes. Deal. General Ryan at the beginning. That's correct. Yeah. That was yeah. his show. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that episode, right? It wasn't it. Okay. Um, you know, so that's the level of <laughs> cooperation and interest we had from the Air Force. So it was, so we had to, even though we were all Canadian, so like all the writers on that show are Canadian and, and we don't have like a really deep sort of military, uh, uh, cultural thing going on in Canada. The military is, doesn't really register for most Canadians <laughs> the way it does for Americans. Right. Uh, uh, so it was a bit odd that we were sort of entrusted with writing these stories about these characters. Brad, Brad was very, you know, he was very cognizant of that. He was aware that, you know, we had a responsibility like Carter, we, she had to do her hair a certain way. Like we couldn't just let her get away with, with, you know, uh, um, even having long hair was an issue, mm -hmm. right? Like, because we, because the Air Force would say would be, be like she wouldn't be allowed to do that, and mm -hmm. she's an Air Force officer. Like, again, this is this is quote unquote real, right? These mm -hmm. are real people in in, in a contemporary contemporaneous storyline. This, this is not on some other planet where the military can be whatever we want it to mm -hmm. be. This is the real Air Force, and so they're they're going to have a say if we do something really weird or strange or make fun of them or whatever you know we we didn't like making them villains i mean they could be villains like that general i think his name was general bauer general like, bauer like, yeah yeah so he was kind of he was a bit of a villain a little bit but so we it wasn't like we had to like make everybody from the air force a hero but we generally tried to balance you know sort of our view of the military because it's easy to make the military a villain in science fiction you know uh like like the guy like the like i think of avatar you know the the the, the jarhead colonel who's who's you know like like oh man he's, he's like mustache twirling for the sake of it you yeah know? so but it's very easy to fall into that trap with the military right to make them because because people who read and write science fiction tend to be kind of left-leaning type people anyway they, they, they tend to be people who you know they're open-minded and they, 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 they might look at the military as being some something kind of fashioned or you know representing a side of humanity that maybe in the future we should get away from you know kind of thing um but we couldn't do that right we couldn't we had to we had to like be respectful of the military and that's a good that episode is a good example because that the whole thing with o'neill at the end where carter's trying to explain to to the cadet why he's doing what he's doing it's like it's like you might be right but if it, but if you're right he's he's risking all of our lives whereas if you're wrong he, he's just risking his life mm -hmm. right and, that, and so he has to make that choice so it was a lesson sort of in in that kind of style of wow. thinking right uh which 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 was which was cool i mean uh, i liked that we could do stuff like that um we didn't do it very often but mm -hmm. but uh it was just kind of sort of baked into the show that we had to we had to deal with issues like that civilian versus military who gets to make the decisions there were always civilian scientists like in that episode who were complaining about the military telling them what to do right stuff like that but but i think the important thing for us was just to just to deal with the issue with some sensitivity and and know that there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer all the time mm. i think it would have been easy for us as a bunch of sort of slightly left-leaning canadian uh, people to just kind of really make fun of the military or make them be villains or whatever. And, like and MASH did. You, that, that was always yeah. my complaint about MASH, is like the military were, were idiots. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. think you really yeah. balanced it out, you know? Yeah, well, I think you were thoughtful. Episode, that was a good example of an episode where we where we tried to do that, but I think it was, 
that was continuous throughout the show, mm. right? Like that, that we, we had to do that all the time. And, and that was just an episode that really highlighted it, but, but it was always kind of there in the background and was an important part of the show. Absolutely. I, I have a handful of, uh, of fan questions I want to get to. Um, okay. Pac-Man D3, I'd love to know Paul's opinion on whether he thinks uh, the next Stargate should be a movie or TV show first. Because there's a there's they're going back and forth right now about it supposedly, so. Uh, God, I would probably do a movie. But do a movie. If it was if it was up to me, I would probably do a movie and then see if it made sense to spit like the original. You know, yeah, it was originally a movie. Um, but I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> JS has a specific lore question. This is a little esoteric, but I'm curious if it rings a bell. Um, so, uh, Marina Baccarin came in as Adria in, uh, right. in season 10. Um, wanted to know, uh, if this is probably a Rob question, uh, if you knew the meaning of the title of Orisai or who gave that, who gave that idea birth? You mean the word itself? Yeah. Uh, that was Rob. That was Rob? I'm okay. pretty sure. I mean, he, the Ori and the Orisai were were i'm pretty sure that was rob he, he he came up with a lot of that mythology and i think the name itself he was probably him okay. yeah he was the ancient guy so yeah yeah For the most part. yeah he, yeah that whole the, the, he yeah he drove a lot of that okay uh philip uh Kanat, in the era we live in now would it make more sense to to write a darker show more political grittier than in the early 2000s or do you think we would we would still make it as as humorous and funny as it was well, or funnier. I think. I think the show. I mean, if you if you look at like Universe, for example, Universe was already trending in that direction, right? It was a darker show. It was uh, it reflected the, the the a sort of a change in television. I think it was more serialized and and all that all that stuff. It was. I mean, there was still humor. Um, I don't think that they're necessarily mutually exclusive. Yep. Um, dealing with dark themes and and humor. Um, but if you're talking about like a new Stargate, is that is that this is in the context of yep. if you yeah, uh, I think it would have to be a little bit more. And people are just it seems odd to say it now, but it feels like Stargate, the original Stargate, uh, SG one early SG one seems like it came from a slightly more innocent time. It really does. Isn't that extent. sad? Yeah, yeah that, that, it, that's it the, is, that's really the reality. Uh, it is. Uh, it just it, I I don't know. I think you would have to be a little bit more uh, just not quite as lighthearted about about it uh, if you were doing a new version mm -hmm. i think um if you were to do stargate now thomas suarez wants to know would you write more big season stories into the show or would you keep it uh as episodic as it was because it was always uh, a hybrid yeah nowadays again people are, are pretty pretty used to serialization at, on a level that's a lot more than what we used to do um nobody's really i mean networks are still doing episodic tv but yep. i don't watch network television. i haven't watched a network show and aside from the sitcoms like i haven't watched a network show in a long time certainly not dramas and once the sort of streaming came along and shows like The Sopranos came along and stuff like that, it, it just felt like the networks got left behind uh, a, a lot and there was just more interesting stuff happening in the serialized streaming world um, that wasn't episodic. And uh, So, yeah, I don't know. And the other thing is, in terms of, like, big stories, uh, the other thing that's happened to TV is... I, 
tons of money is being flooded into TV now that, I mean, the, the budgets that, that happen now on television, we could not have dreamed of on Stargate. <laughs> Oh, it's ridiculous. It was like, shows like, you know, uh, well, obviously Game of Thrones was kind of the one that really started it all. Yeah. Where it was like, oh, yeah, you can spend $10 million an episode and that's nothing. And it's like, oh, my God. But, you know, in science fiction terms, like Foundation and things like that, mm -hmm. you know, like there's just a lot of money being thrown at the screen, it seems like, when they're doing science fiction. And nobody, I don't think any of the streaming services are interested in doing small science mm -hmm. fiction right now. Or maybe they are, I don't know. Maybe there are some, let me know if there's some good Absolutely. Stargate, shows out back, should be what? back in the day, Stargate was, was typically between two and four million, wasn't it? An episode, yeah, if you really broke it, started, it down? It started in the sort of the low, when we came on, it was sort of the low twos. And by the end, it was like over three million, I think. Wow. Uh, okay. Uh, of, of course, that was 20 years ago dollars. Exactly. So, so it would translate to more now, but but yeah. I mean, when we started hearing the stories of the budgets of some of these shows that were that were happening, what was the one? What was the one they shot in Vancouver? What was? Oh, no, I'm going to blank on the name. Give me some information. Uh, oh damn it! It was it's, anyways. The science fiction show came to town, and it was like it was one of those eight million to ten million dollar episode budgets and, and oh like, was it uh, the jurassic park kind of show i forget whatever its name was it was like the biggest no, okay no, it was um it was like a it was a set in the future it was like an urban like, lost in city. space no no oh, okay no. okay oh, lost in space was pretty it looked pretty high end i never yeah i i, I, I suspect they were probably spending a fair amount of money yeah, on, yeah it was shot at bridge they had the jupiter 2 yeah. at bridge so it always seemed like everybody had more money than we did. right uh, uh although in fact actually the budget of stargate was pretty healthy by the end we were it was pretty good yeah we, we got some pretty good support from mgm they they stepped up and and it wasn't wasn't a constant battle to be like you guys need to save money save money save money it was a, it wasn't like that uh, it just it just seemed like as the show evolved, it, streaming came in and these bigger shows started to happen we were like a little bit jealous of, of some of of the money that was <laughs> last question for you um did anyone ever try to get a story with daniel's grandpa back uh nick from season three was was there ever like did anyone did anyone ever bring him up you know as an opportunity like well we maybe we could work him back in it just never happened how did he how did it end with him he he went to visit the giant aliens oh jeez and then we yeah. never heard from him again teal it never occurred to me. I don't know if anyone else brought it up. Uh, no, I don't think so. Ah, Poor that's, guy. You're right. <laughs> He's just out there somewhere. Paul, so many this... other characters went were out there and then came back. He never came back. Too bad. Right, exactly. Yeah, you know. Someone else brought up Lieutenant Tyler from uh, The Fifth Man, which you guys wrote the next season. Um, it would have been would have been cool to see him again. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was a good example of, of what I was talking about before, the single sci-fi idea, right? Yep. What if what if an alien could make you think as a defense mechanism that, that it's he's your friend and you remember him? Yep. That was that was the genesis of that. You know, that was kind of a cool story. That was a great story, absolutely. I'd hate to see a dial attend. It's a ton of paperwork. <laughs> it's so funny. Paul, this has been terrific. I apologize for the audio issues. I'm gonna test tomorrow and see if I can duplicate them. Hopefully not. Um but uh uh, uh, having you make some time for us uh, and go down no memory lane has been great. That's fun. Thank you, sir. You take yeah. care of yourself and have a great summer, all right? All right, you too. Be well. Thanks. Bye-bye.
Paul Molly, everyone, uh, executive producer of Stargate SG One and writer. I apologize. Why am I putting these on? I apologize for the uh, the technical issues here, but I really appreciate you hanging on. Um, it's uh, it's it's been tremendous to have uh, Paul on to uh, discuss some of these older shows and uh, go through this material with him. I want to show you something that we're working on right now. If I can pull it up, let me see here. I usually don't pull the uh, the curtain back too often, um, but this is. Uh, let me see here. Whoops. This is uh, the Dial the Gate archive. This is the beginnings of it, really. Um, it is uh, a breakdown of the YouTube chapters that we've been uh, slowly implementing, that I've been slowly implementing over the past uh, uh, year and a half now. So when you go and you watch uh, an older episode on YouTube, uh, the episode is broken down into its topics. So if, say, Jessica Steen here, click on this, um, we've gone through and broken down each of the time codes where each of these uh, uh, topics are brought up so that you can find them quicker. And it actually assists with the Google, with the YouTube search better. I just wanted to give a shout out to our moderator, Tracy, who has almost single-handedly uh, done this this whole thing. Matthew was was a big help earlier on. Tracy has continued to to carry this, and we are implementing um, the the chapter markers in the earlier episodes. So I'm going to really put my nose to the grindstone here in the next uh, little while to um, break out a lot of these uh, earlier ones that haven't been implemented. This one has already been installed, but a lot of them uh, have not. And I just wanted to give a special uh, shout out to her. To you, Tracy. Thank you so much for all this uh, this work. This has been great. I've been experimenting. One of my one of my genuine concerns with uh, the channel is that I don't have transcripts, and now I think I have like I think I have over two hundred and ten hours of content, um, and I can't afford someone to go and 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 transcribe every episode. So I've been looking at utilities, and I found something called Otter.ai. And I think um, I think that it's going to do the job of uh, auto transcribing the entire collection. It allows us to uh, to put in like specific keywords, so it's not going to know what a tokra is. So I can program it, and so that when it encounters the word tokra, it will put that in. Um, and for the most part, uh, episode names and everything else to capitalize those. But this summer, I'm just putting the word out. Um, it's it's only gonna the trans it's only gonna get the transcript about ninety five percent of the way there ninety to ninety five percent. I'm going to need a small team of people, uh, preferably this summer when most when a lot of folks are off uh, and have some time to um, to go through and uh, the the library and bring that to one hundred percent. So I'm going to start generating the. The transcripts probably in the next month here using uh, the software and load them onto a Google uh, uh, Drive and um, uh, with with them about 90% of the way there. And I'm going to need a, a team of five, six, seven folks, uh, preferably, to go in and manually read them to make sure that the punctuation and, and the spelling of all the Stargate content that the AI has generated is correct. 
and I'm I'm probably I'm gonna be able, I'm gonna be able to pay a little bit of money for each one, but not a lot. So if you're if that's something that you might be interested in uh, this summer in helping us with, do me a favor and email me over at dialthegateshow at gmail dot com, and uh, I really want to get the transcripts uh, off the ground for uh, the Dial the Gate archive, so that we can we can really load the archive with the transcripts, so that we can make everything searchable. Like every time someone has referenced a specific episode or an actor or a situation, you can put in that term and it will be searchable in the archive here that Frederick has has gone ahead and built for us. So if that's something that you think that uh, you'd be interested in helping me with, you can either go to dial the gate, uh, dial the gate show at gmail.com or go to dialthegate.com and click um, the contact us page under about us and uh, get in touch with me and um if you'd like to earn some lawnmower money with me this summer, that'd be a, and you know you you have a background in <laughs> in English or something that uh, that that shows that uh, that you're uh, good at um, punctuation and uh, would be interested in doing this for uh, for a few months until we can get all 184 backed episodes into play. That would be perfect. Michael Welsh, young Jack O'Neill, he's going to be joining us. Uh, this uh, coming Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific time. So we're looking forward to having him on. He was a very last minute ad. Then we have Courtney J. Stevens, uh, who played Elliot in season five of Stargate SG-1. He's joining us this Sunday, Sunday, April the 30th. uh, So following Sunday at 12 noon Pacific time. Uh, So Elliot's going to be back with us. Uh, Courtney is one of the original uh, interviews that I had way back when over at GateWorld, so I'm thrilled to have him. Tiffany Lindell Knight. So you will remember her from episodes such as Touchstone and as Revisions. So she's going to be joining us on May the 4th at 4.30 p.m. Pacific Time. That's a Thursday because she lives in Australia. So she's going to be joining us her Friday morning. So Thursday, May the 4th. Fourth, Tiffany Lindell Knight, and then on Sunday, May the fourteenth, uh, writer Tor Valenza, who's going to come back and uh, regale us of more of his uh, uh, Stargate stories from when he was writing. He has uncovered um, journals from while he was writing on the show, and he's going to share those with us. So that's all the information that I have tomorrow. Jeff Gulka is who was Ritu Charlie in Stargate SG-1's Show and Tell, is going to be joining me and the Wormhole Extremists, the other Wormhole Extremists, for our live commentary tomorrow, which is going to be One False Step and Show and Tell. And uh, so also, you, if you want to join us for that, all you have to do is go over to dialthegate.com or to the Wormhole Extremists page on YouTube. I have everything linked through dialthegate.com now, so I'm finally getting good at this. You can go down to the Wormhole Extremists section you can click on that link and it's even before i've i've made this public it's just it's it's just unlisted right now you can already go ahead and 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 get a jump start on this so um he'll be joining us for both one false step and show and tell tomorrow uh with the wormhole extremist so i'm really um really excited to have uh, have jeff on thank you to my mod team uh tracy uh reese anthony um summer uh, Jeremy, you guys 
are making this all possible. Uh, Frederick Marcoux over at Concepts Web, helping to keep Dial the Gates, uh, keeping Dial the Gate up, up and running. Uh, I appreciate him so much. And thanks to my producer, Linda Gate Gabber Fury, for all your work with Comic Con and everything else that's been going on here. And my thanks to Paul Molly for making um, this episode uh, possible. Lock Watch, uh, who, who asked me? Let me see here. Uh, Lock Watcher, looking for the size and the dimensions of the whack a mole time device square that I have from uh, Window of Opportunity. So I. Keep an eye on the comments for this article or for this uh, episode. I will post the the dimensions for that lock watcher. I think it's like eight inches, something like that. So I'll I'll get a measuring tape after the show and and post a comment under that. So look for that. Raj Luther, I noticed that on the Wormhole Extremist YouTube channel does not have links to the Dial the Gates website. Well, I gotta fix that. I'll add it to the list. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much for um, for being part of the show and getting these uh uh looking for these details and helping us bring the 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 channel to its its full potential and anyone who is interested in helping me with reviewing the transcripts that the ai is going to generate out for me uh in the next um over over the summer is is much appreciated um means means a lot this is a lot of content that i really want to get searchable as text my name is david reed for dial the gate I really appreciate um, you all tuning in and uh, and continuing to to help the show grow. Uh, I will see you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner. Co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith O'Mell, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo designed by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. <laughs>